The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, politics, and some modest proposals, but nothing whatsoever of concern to Australian security agencies. Friday, the 8th of July, 2022. The Winter Series continues with special guest Claire Connolly. She's a researcher, she's a freelance journalist, and she's a policy fellow at the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. Her research is all about the future of democracy, about economic inequality, and an agenda for post-pandemic rebuilding in Australia. In this episode, uh, Claire maps out the wonderful features of contemporary Australia. We have a public housing crisis, we have a rental crisis, we have a home ownership crisis, we have a cost of living crisis, New South Wales is currently underwater, and we're still potentially not out of this pandemic. Like, that's that's a lot of things. But wait, there's more. There's also the... Decades or more of uh, complete neglect or complete incompetence, or both. Pour yourself a drink and strap yourself in, because... It's all sunshine and rainbows here today on the 9pm edict. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. This is the 9pm Doom Before the Revolution with Claire Connolly. But first, let's go back to the early 1960s and a planned city in the northern suburbs of Adelaide. People from many different lands have made a new life in Elizabeth. After all, life goes on in much the same way here as it does in other countries. People have their jobs to do, their shopping to get. It's a busy, thriving community, and there's still room for many, many more. Perhaps that's where you come in. Oh, since you phoned, I had my secretary hunt up some photos of houses I thought you might like. Oh, this is attractive, Bob. I like the porch idea. Looks nice and light, too. How about this one? Hmm? Yes, I rather like that. But I think this is perhaps more in my style. They've all got nice big windows, haven't they? Well, I don't think we'll have any trouble finding a really nice home in Elizabeth. Now, Jobs, what's the employment situation like? Are there any big firms close by? I thought you'd ask that. You'll find that in Elizabeth, the factory areas have been planned close enough to the houses to be convenient. But, of course, not too close. There are many factories making a wide range of goods and calling for a large number of trades. Food mixers and kitchen appliances are made by this well-known English company. And here they make parts for pneumatic equipment of many kinds. Yes, there's a big variety of factories growing up. Pinock sewing machine, for example. New factories create new jobs. And in Elizabeth, there are new factories. All types of industry, light and heavy. General Motors Holdens, one of the largest, heads a list of names known the world over. Claire Connolly, thank you very much for joining me on the pod. It's an honour to be on the show, finally. An honour. Wow. An honour. This is a career highlight for me because we've known each other for Yonks. 10 years, probably oh, more. more. Let's not yeah. age ourselves. No, 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 no. We met at primary school, obviously. <laughs> Claire, I've been really enjoying your work in the Saturday paper recently. I mean, 
Enjoying is not Thank the right you. word because you're writing about difficult topics. Let's kick off with something I had a rant about last week too, housing. And in April, you wrote a piece called Eviction by Dereliction, The Decay of Public Housing. Something that really stood out in that for me was that we only have half the public housing now than we had in the 1990s. What happened? That's really saying something because I think by the 1990s, the share of public housing stock was at its lowest point since the 1940s at about 5%. So we like to idealise the 90s as though it was like everything was great and there was all this public housing. But actually, I mean, it was kind of the dregs of <laughs> what was left of the, of the public housing institution that was started after the war. I remember that. I mean, I'm significantly older than you are, but I I remember being from Adelaide, the northern suburbs of Elizabeth, which was a South Australian housing trust development. And it was kind of assumed that there would be this stock of public housing available. And when you got older, or if you didn't have a lot of money, that there would be something available for you to rent, um, possibly even free if you're old or on the pension. That's not even a thing we have anymore, is it? No, I mean, I think most of the 2000s was spent selling off most of what existed of public housing. It either was consoled off completely and then, you know, redeveloped for private investment, or it was transferred into the to the hands of uh, what we know as social housing, which is basically like um, community housing that's usually run by not-for-profits or some other kind of private entities um, more recently, often social housing is kind of used as a justification for gentrification. So a developer will come through and be like, we're really committed to social housing, but, you know, we're going to buy, you know, build a bunch of really fancy private housing. And, you know, we promise that we're going to, to develop a social mix of people because integration and assimilation is really important. And I'm just using hypothetical figures here, but say, you know, 50% of, of that housing will be social housing. And that way, you know, people can interact with each other. By the time the development plan goes through council and through state governments, lo and behold, it's dropped from 50% to 20 to 5 um, and, you know, every now and then you have units that might have a very small allocation of social housing. Um, but that's very different from public housing because it's not publicly owned. And while the rent might be somewhat subsidised, it's still, you know, on or above the, the 30% range that um, experts say is the threshold for housing stress in this country. 30%, yes. Uh, I, I saw a thing just the other day. Well, it, it'll come up in a minute. Uh, but I was pleased to see and and. Your um, article, in fact, triggered me having a bit of a rant about this back in April on this podcast. But uh, the ABC's 7.30 also uh, did a story on housing affordability and to refresh people's memories, uh, here is just a little part of that podcast. We've already got um, a national shortfall of hundreds of thousands of affordable rental homes, conservatively 200,000 homes right now. The Morrison government said in April it would provide an additional $2 billion in low-cost financing aimed at delivering 29,000 more homes. 
Labor says it will establish a $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund, which it says will deliver 30,000 new social and affordable homes over the next five years. 30,000 new affordable homes. I mean, it sounds good, right? But let's, let's do the maths here. No, let's not do the maths here because I, in fact, ranted for about nine minutes doing the maths. Let's take it as read, though, the short version. Let's take Labor's plan, Labor's in government, 30,000 affordable homes over five years. Assuming that goes all the way to 2036, because we know that's a number that we know by 2036 we'll need a million affordable homes. Uh, So Labor's figure gets us 84,000 of them. So not even 10% of the way there. Uh, And that's assuming no population growth, no increase in inequality, etc. Surely we are fucked. I mean, no one's got a plan here. Uh, look, it's it's pretty dire. I think I'm just trying to go back and check the article that I wrote. I think it was something like 710,000 new homes and needed like yesterday. Yeah. 730 to meet demand as measured by the waiting list for public housing. Now, this was written sort of probably right around the times of the last floods that we were having. And Mm. I'm confident that those figures do not take into account the displaced communities in places like Lismore, for example, all of the people that have been affected by bushfires. You know, there's an entire portion of the east coast of New South Wales and even up through Queensland that we now have to go, are these like habitable areas? Like, are we going to continue to build on on floodplains? Are we going to continue to build in bushfire zones? And if we are, what does that mean? And if we're not, what happens to these communities? And you've already got, you know, a waiting list with I'm certain more hundred more than seven hundred and thirty thousand people. Absolutely. I mean, let's call it a million. We might as well. Yeah. Easily, easily. So 6,000 a year, which is what Labor's commitment is, it's not going to do anything. It sounds a lot. It's a few billion dollars, but eh, it's nothing. And also, has Labor specified if this is public housing? Because we need to be careful here to distinguish (laughs) between social housing, affordable housing, and public housing. Those are Uh. three very different things. And, like, to be fair here... I think there are like a series of cascading problems. Number one, I think the most important thing is that we have a growing population of impoverished people that are either on welfare or some kind of income support. There is a a growing homeless population whose needs are just not being attended to. And there is not enough housing for those people alone. In addition to that, you have the working poor who are like one paycheck or one, you know, sick day away from really being in severe financial stress, potentially facing homelessness. In addition to that, you have the sort of lower to middle middle class who like, okay, like they are far more comfortable than the previous two parts of the population that I just mentioned. But I, I think it's also important to highlight there is a huge part of the Australian population, even all the way up to the like what we would consider to be relatively well off that are really living paycheck to paycheck. So we have like a quite stratified system of quite severe, tenuous financial circumstances that is on, you know, as a, quite a large scale. And we have 
a public housing crisis, we have a rental crisis, we have a home <laughs> ownership crisis, we have a cost of living crisis. New South Wales is currently underwater and we're still potentially not out of this pandemic. Like that's that's a lot of things to deal um, with at once. Yes. So um, in a sentence, how are we going to solve it? <laughs> yeah. Exactly, How much time right? do you have? How much time do you have? I mean, I would like to see somewhere in the range of a million to 1.5 new publicly owned public housing built for amenity. That means that they're safe, they're dry, you can heat them or cool them with little energy escape to diminish the cost of energy bills. Um that you know that have all of the amenities that you need and that are available to any and all who want them but i think we you know we really need to start prioritizing the most vulnerable among us i don't think that that should be controversial to say and then once we've done that and that's a big if anyway mm. we need to find a way to make both rental and home ownership accessible to anyone who wants it for the better part of 50 years, we have prioritized home ownership over renting. And I don't think necessarily that home ownership should be the model that we aspire to. You know, unfortunately, we have a market and economy and financial system that says if you don't own property, you're kind of a bit stuffed, basically. Mm. Um, but I think we need to have a system where everyone has a right to safe, affordable housing, regardless of income. But first, we need to fix the income problem. We need to fix the public housing problem, welfare, homelessness. We, you know, a lot of the things that we see written about, while very well intentioned, seem to be very attractive to the middle class and won't do mm -hmm. diddly to help the least fortunate among us. Uh. Uh, well, normally um, we do the trigger word segment of this podcast a bit later, and we will. We will throw a trigger word or two at you. Uh, but uh, here's one that was sent through specifically for you, and it fits in right oh, into God. this discussion. Katrina Jetty, thank you, Katrina, regular supporter. She suggested co-housing. Now, before we do that, I have an explanation from ABC News uh, who did a piece on this on, on Wednesday. As if the cost of living wasn't already high enough, rising interest rates are putting even more pressure on family budgets. But what if you could share the costs by sharing the space? Charlie Woolley and her two-year-old son live in a three-bedroom house in one of Hobart's most expensive suburbs with views to die for. I thought previously that I would never live in a house like this. Every day I'm just so grateful to come home and be like, this is my house. Just 18 months ago, the 22-year-old was living in a student boarding house, unable to afford anywhere else. It seemed she and her son Jasper would likely end up homeless. I wanted him to have a safe place to call his own and I couldn't provide that. <laughs> So Charlie applied to live here, the South Hobart Co-Housing Cooperative. It's made up of 12 rented buildings and a large common building, which includes kitchen, laundry and dining room, where the residents can arrange shared meals. You have common resources in co-housing and you have a communal ethos 
in that you are a community and you look out for each other and you enjoy doing things together as a community. Like Charlie, Kate Kelly is a single mother who was on the brink of homelessness when she moved in. I was paying 70% of my income in rent and I'd gotten to the point where I wasn't using electricity or petrol on the days my son went to his father's house. The cooperative which owns the land and the buildings runs like a business. Rent is means tested and never exceeds 30% of household income. But starting a cooperative isn't simple. Individual groups are essentially required to become developers. And it seems to be more attractive to residents than lenders. Because banks are not used to lending to collectives. Room for improvement to help those seeking solutions. Will Murray, ABC News. Ah, sounds both lovely and diabolical. Your reactions first, Claire. Oh, must we? <laughs> Look, okay, I, I'm trying to be as sensitive as possible because obviously anything that gets people off the street and gets them further away from potential homelessness is ultimately a good thing. So I don't want to shit on Charlie's situation. <laughs> um, to, no, to- I mean, it's actually quite a nice spot. She could afford to live there. Yeah. But look, there are, there are several trigger words or phrases in that new segment. Uh-huh. I've written down here, um, it means it's run like a business, mm-hmm. uh, red flag. It means you have to become your own developer. Big old red flag there. And also just the maths, like 12 rented buildings and some other buildings. I don't know if they specified the number. Like if we're going to think that co-ops – are going to be the thing that solves this problem. Like, okay, how many people can you fit into 12 rented buildings? Like the, just the demographics and the numbers of that. How many of those do you need to build to, to address this housing problem? What you essentially had was um, a dozen places in kind of duplex or triplex setup, you know, an upstairs, downstairs um, townhouse. So you've got a dozen townhouses and then a big, a big, well, not a big building, but a building that has a, a big kitchen in it. So if you wanted to have a party or something, you could presumably book that and share it. And I assume there's laundry facilities there or something like that, as you would have in a small apartment block. But they're set up as townhouses rather than apartments. Part of me is just saying, get a fucking apartment. Just <laughs> roll this. Um, for me, and I understand your points about it being run like a business, it therefore has to make a profit, It, you know, all of those things. For me, I don't want to form a fucking community with people just because they happen to live next door. Um, you know, my, my people, my community are, are elsewhere and maybe, sure, where I am now, people next door and that's good, but maybe the people next door are assholes, and I don't, <laughs> you know, I don't want to be tied to them as a shareholder in a cooperative. Look, it works for some people, obviously, some kinds of people in the way they like to live, and that's terrific. They've got their shared veggie patch and and all of that. It's all very nice. Sounds like an episode of Five Bedrooms. Shout out to my friend Michael Lucas, who's an excellent screen and film writer. But yeah, I don't <laughs> I'll look, look to that. 
this aspires to my very bougie um, like teenage dream that like just me and all of the people that I love would just live in one big sort of co-op apartment building and you know that's <laughs> fine but like there was a reason that that was the a fantasy to me at 16 yes. <laughs> and not now and that's very different from like is this going to solve the public housing crisis is this going to solve exactly. the rental crisis no and also you know I, i've actually i've been looking into co-working spaces recently because I, oh, yeah. I work from home and i would like to do less <laughs> of that of that and yeah. it turns out that like the economics of co-working spaces are like really backwards like it's actually often cheaper to rent your own two or three person office than it is to rent a desk in a co-working space and I feel like because co-working has become very trendy particularly you know since COVID there's kind of an economies of scale issue Mm. and I fear that the same thing will happen here like it sounds really bougie and lovely and maybe there is some sort of middle to lower income people for whom this might be appealing for a period of time particularly those in their like you know 20s but I don't think it's a solution to a bigger problem it might be a solution to some people's problems like Charlie for example I don't want to invalidate her experience because you know, I, I want her to have a safe place for her and her child to live. Exactly. Um, so, sorry, Charlie, if you're listening to this, this isn't about <laughs> your particular scenario, but I just query whether this is a sort of macro solution. Mm, and it's macro solutions we need and big time. Well, let's uh, change the subject slightly and uh, get onto another big problem. Actually, before we do that, uh, a quick fact check on Labor's policy. What sort of housing will it be? Uh, From the official policy statement at Labor's website, Labor will create the $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund, which would be half, I suppose, which will build 30,000 new social and affordable housing properties. So social and affordable, not public, properties in its first five years and create thousands of jobs. Uh, Each year, the investment from the Future Fund will be transferred to the National Housing Finance and Investment Corporation, (laughs) to pay for social and affordable housing projects. And in the first five years, that'll be 20,000 social housing properties, uh, 4,000 of which will be for women and children fleeing domestic and family violence and older women on low incomes who are at risk of homelessness, and 10,000, so 20,000 for that first category, 10,000 affordable homes for the frontline workers like police, nurses and cleaners who kept us safe during the pandemic. This will mean they can live closer to where they work and it will mean better services for everyday Australians, whatever they are. None of it public housing, assuming they're using the words as we're using them. Well, now... Uh, Here's a word from the Treasurer of Australia, Dr Jim Chalmers. Uh, There's no shortage of challenges uh, right now in the Australian economy. When you combine natural disasters, uh, global uncertainty, uh, this spike in inflation and what that has meant for rising interest rates as well. 
And as you all know, uh, today the Independent Reserve Bank increased interest rates again uh, by half a percent to 1.35 percent. We understand that this is really challenging news for Australians who are already doing it tough. Doing it tough. Such an Australian cliche that from politicians. But with lettuces costing uh, $5 or more, um, I don't know how we can go on, Claire. And in the illustration for your story in the Saturday paper about this subject, there was a bloke putting up iceberg lettuce $8.90, which I thought was a bit steep. Anywhere between seven to eleven dollars, I think, is is your sort of national current average. It's it's cheaper to put. It's pretty absurd. Yeah, (laughs) you know what would be really great for the economy right now? Just saying. Um, Yeah, look, things are not things are not good. Maybe edit that part out still. (laughs) No, no, no. Oh, Um, hell no. Things are not good. Thank you for that. Uh, exactly. Um, and and how did we uh, get to this place of things being, as you say in the technical term, they're not good. Uh, look, it's it's a it's a confluence of a series of factors. Um, I think what we're currently experiencing, to try and summarise this as quickly as possible, is a combination of demand and supply shocks, and by that I mean. Um, we had demand shocks that were created by COVID. We had um, a unforeseen pandemic that screwed mm-hmm. up supply chains um, and that caused prices to increase. Um, we had um, a very necessary stimulus to, to keep the economy from tanking for two years. And then people finally left their houses and started spending. So that created what we call a supply shock because allegedly there are more things, uh, there's more demand for things than the things they want to buy. Um, And combined with that, you have Putin invading Ukraine, which created uh, an energy crisis. Um, So that caused the price of oil and gas to increase. Mm -hmm. Combined with that, you have um, decades or more of uh, complete neglect or complete incompetence, or both, Um, particularly when it comes to um, electricity and energy planning, action on climate change, wages, um, a general economic uh, plan for, like, what we are as a country and and what we're going to uh, export, produce, um, manufacture or create to uh, provide for ourselves. And in addition to that, you have a system of structural discrimination where um, companies that were strategically placed in these supply chains were able to charge whatever they wanted um, in the middle of a crisis and a market-based economy, which basically allows the people that control the goods to, to set the prices, such that in Australia, profits now enjoy the largest share of GDP in history while wages share the lowest. Does that sum it up nicely? Yeah, that's quite a list. I won't repeat the list. It's depressing. But (laughs) when when you put it all together like that, it's a wonder anything works at all. Um, 
and again, a number of things you've you've spoken about there are are really huge long term issues. Because I'm thinking global supply chains. We had the global supply chains because energy was cheap. You could shove things in containers and put them on container ships, and now that's less cheap, quite a lot less cheap, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Let's not go through that again. Um, we know that the official inflation rate is at a 22-year high. Uh, your article back in April said 5.1%. It's clearly going to be more than that. The UK is at 10%. Um, the United States, as, as an aside... Uh, I saw someone tweet the other day, oh, we just travelled from so-and-so to so-and-so and you can't, you know, everywhere we went, you couldn't get staff and you couldn't get service and whatever. What happened? And someone pointed out, well, well, a million people died. Remember that? <laughs> a million yeah. low-paid workers yeah. died. Um and as they well were as sick everything and else. couldn't come to work and you hollowed out the labour force, particularly mm-hmm. here in Australia. You know, I was overseas when everything kicked off and I was watching Scott Morrison's, I think it was his first sort of COVID conference, and he basically told, you know, if you're a migrant in this country, please go home. So yeah. we hollowed out our labour force at the exact time that we needed them and people got sick, people died. Mm-hmm. And you, you, so in addition to having an increased cost of the stuff that we need and difficulty getting it over here, once it got here, there weren't enough people to actually distribute the stuff to the places that it needed to go. So that created um, significant shortages. Um, and, it, you know, in addition to this, in Australia at least, and certainly in other parts of the world like the US and the UK, you've been able to borrow for close to 0% mm-hmm. um, in terms of interest. And so, you, you know, you've created, uh, you know, some could argue quite deliberately um, a really uh, unfair system where um, basically capital either has the most stuff or owns the most stuff or both. And, you know, it's just completely blown out uh, the inequality gap in this country and across the world. There are a number of things there. I mean, some are unique to Australia, most are not. Uh, yes, the, the migrant labour force, we're talking particularly at the low end, uh, backpackers and international students, both yeah. of whom were allowed to do their 20 hours a week uh, and often, you know, a little bit of cash, stay on another couple of hours, no one will know. That sort of thing. But that was what happened at the lower end of the economy. Uh, tourism fell apart. That's a big industry. So certainly up here in the Blue Mountains. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of empty shops. Yeah. Um, and, and that's still not recovered. I, I remember the Carrington Hotel up in Katoomba, which is this huge late Victorian era mountain resort. And it, you know, now it counts as three star, probably, but whatever. A lot of their, they had a whole regular lunchtime trade of busloads of package middle class tourists from China. And there was a hotel in the city, which is where they stayed. That hotel closed during the pandemic, like oh, totally, God. and doesn't reopen. The bus company down, you know, whatever, because it was this chain of people because they came from Shanghai or Shenzhen or wherever as a package tour. So everyone who was part of that package screwed. That's And terrible. that hasn't come back yet. Yeah. No. Um, 
you've said, you know, you listed just the one or possibly two reasons this is happening. How bad do you? I mean, Chalmers says it'll get worse before it gets better. How's your how's your crystal ball doing there, Claire? Oh, I mean, look, I really loathe making predictions, but mm-hmm. my inclination would be that Chalmers is correct. I think, yeah, I think he's bracing us for for quite severe conditions. Um, yeah, look, the thing I've said this before, so for those who've heard me elsewhere, um, apologies in advance. But the thing with inflation and and the various sort of crises that it has accompanied, the thing to do is to not create the conditions for that to occur in the first place. And once you have them, <laughs> it's quite difficult to do anything in the short term except for increasing interest rates. But increasing interest rates is going to potentially drive us into a recession because it also has, uh, you know, a sort of supply chain knock-on effect, which is your mortgages become more expensive. So if you own an investment property and you're renting, likely that cost will be passed on to renters. Rents are going to go up. It's already almost impossible to find a place to rent, particularly Mm -hmm. in the metropolitan areas. If you're a business owner, the same thing applies. If you're leasing a space, you have to increase your prices in order to be able to afford to stay in business in order to pay your rent. Um, And the logic behind this is, you know, well, People will be too busy trying to keep their heads above water. They won't have time to spend on frivolities. And so that will cause prices to drop because it, demand will drop alongside it. Um, but the things that are experiencing the highest level of inflation, which is far higher than the 5.1%, um, anywhere between 65 to 75% are in uh. necessities. Yes. It's not in, you know, wine or beer or movie tickets or restaurants. It's in lettuce and toilet paper and petrol and fruit and vegetable. Rent and, yeah. Rent. So you, you're putting people in a position where they're forced to choose between rent and medication or food and rent or the gas bill. and Like that's a – you're forcing people – people into a really tenuous financial situation because you want inflation to sit at a particular level. Economists like John Quiggan have argued that the rate of inflation, A, we should probably stop targeting it altogether, but if we are going to target it, it needs to be considerably higher than the 2 to 3% we've been gunning for over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, others like myself might argue, why are we focusing on inflation at all without an understanding of what it is that we're saying. And really what this comes down to is how much poverty and unemployment are we prepared to tolerate to keep prices at a particular level? We might not have been in this situation Mm. if you had considered taxing profits in the first place because companies like Origin, for example, or Santos have done just fine out of this pandemic. I mean- Gaslit recovery, (laughs) hurrah! Yeah, it's it's we're really suffering the consequences of a system where workers have been forced to pay for the taxes of capital like that's really what this comes down to and if we don't start now or yesterday or 10 years ago to address these really structural forms of discrimination we're going to 
not just have a recession, but I mean, I think it might take a potentially long time to recover from. More, more cheerful stuff here, Claire. Uh, we will take a break from all this uh, cheerfulness and frivolity uh, to do the housekeeping. Another quick fact check. I said just before that the UK inflation rate is currently 10%. Not quite. It's 9.1% in the latest official figures. Of course, they have the same problems uh, that we have here, that Claire explained that, that so many things that we depend upon are inflating faster than that. Inflatable lettuces, inflatable petrol. I mean, it's kind of like exploding petrol, but not as violent. Anyway, 9.1% in the UK, uh, although that was before what Boris Johnson did in the last 24 hours as I record this. Uh, Next week on this podcast, I'm hoping it'll be a little more joyful and and frivolous uh, because our special guest once again is satirist Mark Humphreys, who you know from the television and... uh, Well, you know who Mark Humphreys is. He's been on the podcast before. If you are a supporter with trigger words or a conversation topic specifically for me and Mark, and I will say we will be recording at at a pub. We might have had a couple of beers beforehand. Uh, You'll need to get them to me by midday on Thursday. That's midday Australian Eastern Standard Time uh, on Thursday the 14th of July. 2022. This podcast is, of course, made possible by you, the generous listener, and today I'd like to thank, uh, again, everyone who contributed to the 9pm Winter Series crowdfunding campaign. That was fabulous. And and specifically in this episode, let's, uh, let's thank the media freedom citizens and foot soldiers who, who continue to, to just bolster uh, this whole thing through their the their generous efforts. Uh, the Media Freedom Citizens who contributed a basic tip. There's six of you. You know who you are. You're listed on the website. Thank you very much. And the Foot Soldiers for Media Freedom who gave a slightly less basic tip. There's plenty of familiar names here, uh, but some new ones too. Andrew Duval, for example. Uh, also, Andrew Kennedy, thank you. Benjamin Morgan. Bob Ogden, uh, who, if it's the same Bob Ogden I knew many years ago, I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, we used to call him Bobo Gaden. Uh You should continue to do that. David Heath, thank you very much. Gary McKenzie. Garth Kidd. Garth Kidd again, uh, because he he made a second small, slightly less basic tip. Uh, Garth Kidd yet again, yes, for the third time, uh, a third slightly less basic tip in this possible campaign, specifically so he could hear me say yet again for the third time. Uh, Garth, you could have just bought a trigger word for that and we could have... Oh, hang on, I noticed... There is a trigger word in the jar. 
with your name on it. So there you go. Uh, Ian, thank you, Garth. Uh, Ian Triffitt, thank you. Jamie Morrison, Jason Anderson, Jordan Reitman, Kimberly Heitman over in Perth, thank you, Kimberlyn. Matt Arkell, Michael Strasser, Paul McGarry, Regina Huntington again. Hi, Regina. Shane O'Neill, uh, who I think is in Melbourne. Doesn't really matter. Hi, Shane. Tim Bell. Tony Barnes, hi Tony, and four people who choose to remain anonymous. All those people gave a slightly less basic tip. Thank you very much. If you too would like to give a slightly less basic tip, or indeed a tip of any size, just pop over to the 9pmedict.com slash tip. That's the 9pmedict.com slash tip. And I should mention, you can get trigger words and conversation topics without uh, having to make it part of uh, one of the quarterly possible campaigns, go to skank.com.au slash subscribe. That's skank.com.au slash subscribe. You'll see the options there. Uh, it's it's basically the same deal as with the possible campaigns. Uh, and all, you, all you're doing is it's, it's more or less exactly the same as giving a tip, except that uh, we capture the fact that you subscribe for later up and and just bill you. You can you can do it as a one-off, uh, an annual payment, or uh, quarterly ones, which kind of obviously are about the twelfth of the price, but monthly. The nine pm dot com slash tip. It's all sunshine and rainbows here today on the 9pm edict. It certainly is, Claire. <laughs> so let's see whether the glass jar of transparency can uh, deliver something a little more cheerful. This is the glass jar of transparency, as a, uh, also known as a washed-out Makona coffee jar. Uh, it contains um, pieces of paper folded up. Each one has a word written on it that a supporter has chosen and sent in in the hope that it would trigger a conversation. Um, One comes out at random. I'm very nervous. From Crispin Harris. Ah, he's a friend from way back, regular supporter. We have a a fairly um, relaxed definition of the word, word here. His word is personal liberty. Okay. Where does that fit into our grand scheme of things? I'm going to offer a suggestion that one aspect of this, unless it triggers anything else, is that many of the things which we might put forward as solutions or partial solutions to the problems we've, we've already discussed would be seen as impinging on people's personal liberty. In what way? Well, public ownership. I'm paying for someone else's house, aren't I? Why do I have to work and pay taxes when that person over there just got a free house? Well, we're already paying for somebody else's house. If you rent, you're paying for somebody else's house. That's a fair point. We're also paying for gas barons' houses and swimming pools. We're paying for people's nice private schools with equestrian uh, facilities. There's lots of things that we're paying for that we don't get to use. I mean, the subsidies to the private sector alone. How much JobKeeper was Harvey Norman allowed to keep? 
Uh, Guess who paid for it? $37 billion or something. Yeah. Uh, that's possibly Guess not who- the right figure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's an estimate. That's an that's estimate. an estimate. But, it was around that. <laughs> but we're paying for these things. Like we're paying for the comfort of people who, for not all of the people, but a lot of the money that was spent, either in COVID stimulus or just in stimulus or subsidies, as as they're you know nicely mm-hmm. diplomatically called over the last. 10, 15, 25 years was to people who didn't need it. So doesn't that impinge on my personal liberties? Well, I suppose it does. And, and it reminds me of a diagram I saw the other day, sort of like a, a little circle showing your wages coming in. You're a worker somewhere. And it showed then a little bubble off the side of that, which was your taxes going out. And it asks the question, why are you complaining about this bit when it showed on the other side a vast bubble, which was value from your labour going elsewhere? Why aren't you complaining about this other bit? 100%. I mean, what we in New South Wales are seeing right now with our beloved Premier, Dom Perite, for example, if we're going to talk Mm -hmm. about personal liberties, what about the right to bargain? or the right to protest or strike. You know, our Premier is just, I don't know if it's official yet, so I'm going to say trying to criminalise striking and protest action with fines of $110,000 and several years in prison. So that... The first charges under the protest laws have in fact happened. Those laws are through. Uh, And I can't remember the exact... Yes, I can remember. It's, It's around... Uh, if you conduct a protest that disrupts things, and it's aimed at those people who were blocking um, the coal railways and things like that, mm-hmm. but in fact the way the law is written, it can be any protest that disrupts in certain ways and it's up to $22,000 or two years in jail, which is more than you would get for actually assaulting the police. Not to mention yesterday, it was my understanding, if it's not law already, then he's certainly trying to make it illegal for teachers, nurses, railway workers, Department uh, of Childcare, from striking for better pay and safer working conditions. Like he's essentially trying to criminalise worker bargaining power. Doesn't that impose on our personal liberties? <laughs> that certainly does. And I will say... It's an interesting turnaround because the the labour movement and, in fact, the eight-hour workday was created in large part by striking rail workers in Britain during uh, the 1800s because they were forced to work long shifts in unsafe conditions. And then when train crashes happened, it was their fault. Uh, human error, as we call it today. I'm hearing some 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 really familiar terms. I can't quite put my finger on it. <sighs> Thank you, Crispin, for that. Thank you, Crispin. Let's do one more. Um, hang on, I've got to do it close to the microphone. So this is fun. Let's do it. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, yeah, well, I've have thought. Uh, we Mark Humphreys, as I said, is on next week. Um, and we might just, you know, spend the whole afternoon pulling pulling words <laughs> out, out of the thing and see what... Oh, oh! From Rowan Gladman, the word is revolution. Hey, comrade, viva <laughs> no, la revolucion. Comrade. 
Yeah, nothing short of is what is needed right now. If we are, I like, I you know, I, people say revolution, and we think about you know, hordes overthrowing governments, American and, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Cuba. Um, that's mm-hmm. you know, I, but there's Russia. Uh, there's a different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably topical, the closest topical. to what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> get get but, pretty bolshy here. Look, there, you know, there there is a I mean, I hate to be one of these people. There are other kinds of revolutions, but mm. truly, you know, what we do need oh, is you a government. Like every female student politician in the nineteen seventies just and then. every undergraduate student ever. Yeah. Um what we really do need is a, a government and, and union leadership that is actually committed to um, workers' rights, that are committed to fair compensation and safer working conditions, and to creating a system that facilitates something approximating equal opportunity with regards to being able to save, um, being able to uh, choose to own your own home, um, to be able to pass something down to our children, you know, We've had three generations now of, of uh, children that are, are worse off financially than their parents are, and the prosperity th- is just not being shared. And there is some really critical aspects of how our country operates and the way that our economy is structured that is going to need to change if any of the things that we've been talking about today are to be addressed. And I don't think it is something that should take a revolution, frankly, because we elect these leaders and particularly looking at the results of, of the last election, you know, I think it's pretty clear <laughs> what people want and, and why we've had a change of government. And so there is a momentous opportunity here, but it's going to take a government that is prepared to stand on principle, that is confident in mounting arguments for economic alternatives and for promoting policies that might be more popular with workers than they are with um, wealthy political donors. Well, I'm going to jump ahead. I'd planned to play this clip a little later, but I'll play it now. This is uh, our illustrious leader, Anthony Albanese, Prime Minister of the Commonwealth of Australia, uh, speaking, um, oh, last, no, back in the end of May when he was announcing his cabinet. You've put uh, housing into cabinet, uh, sorry, that your predecessor did not have uh, as a cabinet spot. Is that indicative of your belief that the housing crisis is biting even harder than we've actually heard before and that you have to do far more in the housing space to address those issues than you've already announced during the campaign? There are two two issues. Um, one, I can confirm, uh, yes, uh, your the premise of your question is correct, but something else as well. If you follow my uh, history in politics, housing has been a passion of mine. It's also been a passion of mine that the federal government should be playing a role in, in areas like uh, housing and urban development and those issues and uh, that will be uh, an absolute priority of my government. (laughs) And he's also spoken about addressing inequality, cost of living, various social equity issues, Uh, an absolute priority and a passion until the 26th of this month when Parliament returns and he has to face the cold, hard reality of getting legislation through. Oh, and let's not forget um, an increase in job seeker is unaffordable, but for some reason yeah. state three tax cuts for the wealthiest Australians is somehow totally affordable. So um, yeah. go figure. Mm. 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 
Um, I mean, this is not the revolution we're looking for <laughs> with Albanese, clearly. Um, I, I, I don't think we're going to have an armed revolution in Australia. That's, you know, that's all much, too much hard work, really, isn't it? <laughs> um, you know, we'll... we'll but we need a revolution in thinking. We've spoken in so many ways today about how it has to be a revolution that nibbling at the, the edges simply isn't going to do anything. It's really not going to cut it. And um, I do think it was pretty ironic yesterday, um, Don Perite, to take things back to New South Wales again. Sorry, rest of Australia. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, um, you know, he... Quite rightly, to be one, fair. One of, the, one of the last conservative governments left in Australia. Yeah, um, not for long. It's, it's something to do, I know, March March next year is the New South Wales election. Yeah, in look, I mean, minute. I, I want to I talk to you about that, but just park that for one second. Okay. Y- yesterday, Dom Perite, um, quite rightly, um, defended the Prime Minister who is obviously not of the same party, against mm-hmm. charges made in certain media outlets, um, you know, who on behalf of, of uh, people like Angus Taylor, for example. <laughs> Who's still not in jail, I notice. Yeah, it's weird. I, I don't know why that is. Um, uh. People like Angus Taylor, for example, levelled criticisms at Albanese for having the audacity to... Um, travel overseas for various diplomatic meetings, including a trip to Ukraine, um, basically trying to, to level the same uh, criticisms that were levelled at our own former Prime Minister who went to Hawaii while Australia was on fire. And Perite very rightly um, defended Albanese against this. But what would have been nice is if Albanese in turn defended Australian workers who are being threatened with prison times and you know hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines for having the audacity to go on strike. So, you know, if 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 Albanese is committed to um, a kinder, fairer, more egalitarian government and a, a, you know a a kind of fair and more egalitarian public, that means you've got to support workers and you've got to create public housing and you've got to support the right of the Australian population to fight for the very basic dignity of a wage that covers the cost of living. If it doesn't cover the cost of living, it's not really a wage and you're not really running a business is really what this comes down to. Um, and, you know, I really think we need some pushback on this. Yeah. So look at that. If your business is so on the edge that a 5% increase in your wages bill, which is only a part of your business, is going to sink it, then your business was pretty fucked anyway. Like such a, a relatively minor ripple in just one of your costs. Um, you should be able to handle that. Yeah, look, there are there are a couple of things here. First of all, across the board, capital expenditure is at its lowest point in Australian history. Businesses are not investing in themselves. 
All of this recovery is the result of government spending. There has been no obligation on the part of big business to invest either in their workers, in their infrastructure, in their training programs. You know, it, it's socialism for the best of us and capitalism for the rest of us when it comes to the big end of town. But look, I do think it's important to make a distinction when it comes to things like small business because I think we are suffering from a compounding problem of an in-demand economy, which is that businesses have since like probably the late 70s been encouraged to hold as little inventory as possible, to keep mm -hmm. costs as low as humanly possible, which means that when things that happen unexpectedly, you know, uh, push you in a certain direction, you do not have a robust allocation of capital to be able to respond to that. So when it comes to small businesses, I you, in particular, I do have some sympathy because mm. they have essentially been conditioned for decades to keep as little away for a rainy day as possible. And when everything is already budgeted and allocated for, I can understand why a small business might struggle to justify a 5% increase in wages. But that is not the same when we're talking about bigger businesses, when we're talking about mm, banks and financial institutions, um, franchises, major brands. I mean, it's a tragedy, the, the massive losses that the banking industry is suffering at the moment. Oh, yeah. I got world's yeah. smallest violin playing just yeah. for you. Yeah. I mean, trying to get a business loan at the moment is close to impossible. I, I, I'm, I Don't quote me on the statistics, but I'm fairly sure business lending is at its lowest point as well. So you can see you have a series of issues here that actually make it quite hard for some businesses, particularly on the small and medium enterprise, to have the flexibility to offer a wage increase, which means they hemorrhage staff, which makes them equally insecure because it hinders their ability to stay open. Um, but it also, if you want to create or start a business in this country, try to get a business loan. It's really, really, really difficult. We're almost out of time and it feels like we're just warming up to our theme here. <laughs> <laughs> Getting into it. I want to finish on on one thing. We won't come back to the New South Wales election just now. Maybe that's a thing for another time, a bit of a special. Ooh, hiss. Oh. <laughs> but I want to go instead to an article uh, – that I read and sent you from the LA Review of Books, the Los Angeles Review of Books. The headline, Neo-Feudalism, the End of Capitalism, question mark. Now, this article begins by mentioning a book called Capital is Dead by Mackenzie Walk. And I thought, Mackenzie Walk, I know that name. And I went, yes, she's Australian. She's best known for works going way back, including a hacker manifesto from like about 25 years ago and oh. gamer theory. Yes, that's Mackenzie Walk. Right. And she's lived in the US for a, a long time now. Uh, she's professor of media and cultural studies at the New School, whatever that is, in New York City. Anyway, that's her recent book, Capital is Dead. The thesis of that and and this essay in LA Review of Books is that capitalism, and we, we keep hearing like late capitalism and the end of capitalism and that something else. The, the thesis is that the something else that is coming is something they're calling neo-feudalism. And some of the aspects of this are two things. One is if you look at Apple, 
Facebook, or Meta, as the, the parent company, Microsoft, Amazon, and Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google and YouTube and all of them, together they are worth more than almost every individual country in the world except for United States, China, Germany, and Japan. So that the tech industry, as we lump together, and we haven't even included, I mean, so many names we haven't included there, but they are bigger than, together, they're bigger than Korea or bigger than Indonesia in their economy or bigger than India. So it means those entities are negotiating with nation states on kind of equal terms. And we see that. The Australian government negotiates about media laws with Google. They don't just, like, as as equals. Um, and the idea is, I'll, I'll, I'll read like a couple of sentences here. Under neo-feudalism, the directly political character of society reasserts itself. Global uh, financial institutions and digital technology platforms use debt to redistribute wealth from the world's poorest to the richest. Brackets, yes, we know everyone's credit cards and mortgages are maxed out while those big companies have so much cash behind the couch they could basically buy New Zealand. And nation states promote and protect specific private corporations and taxes and fines happen. For example, the $22,000 fine if you disrupt a business operation, uh, you know, whereas if a business disrupts your life, you know, no balance there. And 10% of global wealth is currently hoarded in offshore accounts to avoid taxation, etc., etc., etc. We're all in the gig economy. We have no rights as individuals. We, we doff our cap to our technological overlords for the right to earn uh, $3.75 for delivering a pizza. Is this our world? Well, the only thing that I would quibble with is that this is something that's coming. I would argue this yes. is already here. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, it was interesting to read about this because um, perhaps it's not ironic. Episode. It's fantastic. And uh, it was interesting because over the last few years I've been – I used to work for a um, – a research institution in the UK examining uh, the potential policy consequences of data omissions and basically, you know, led to the conclusion that these companies like Google and Facebook and Microsoft have own and have access to more data than any government on its mm -hmm. own or combined. And so- Because governments aren't allowed to collect certain kinds of data. No, and they have like deliberately- decided to have a hands-off approach you know like I've I've sat in on meetings and and um, watched uh, various conferences where you know central bank economists and policymakers say well we can't push too hard because you know this entire system hinges on the consent of these companies to, to play ball with us and so we can't possibly ask more of them than what is already um, being asked of them with regards to um, sharing and disclosing information. And it's been posited by people like Shoshana Zuboff, who I was really pleased to see um, mentioned in this article. It's led to the systematic devaluing and undervaluing of these entities. And we don't really know what their true value is because we don't have any transparency over what data they collect, where they get it from and what it's being used for while they're creating informal markets that make money on the ability to predict people's behaviour. 
Shisana Zuboff, I should say, is the creator of the phrase surveillance capitalism. And I believe the book is of the same name. The Era of Surveillance Capitalism, I believe, is uh-huh. the full title, Stick. Anyway, it's a solid concept. It's, a, it's terrifying. And I w- this phrase jumped out at me in this um, essay and I, I, I was had difficulty understanding whether it was posited as a criticism or an agreement, but I might just read it out to you if that's okay. Mm, please. Tyler Cowen's emphasis on the permanence of extreme inequality in the global automated economy, the Conservative geographer Joel Kotkin envisions the U.S. future as mass serfdom. A property-led underclass will survive by servicing the needs of high earners as personal assistants, trainers, childminders, cooks, cleaners, etc. Now, this is this is the bit that concerns me. The only way to avoid this neo-feudal nightmare is by subsidizing and deregulating the high employment industries that make the American lifestyle of suburban home ownership and the open road possible, construction and real estate, oil, gas and automobiles, and corporate agribusiness. Unlike the specter of serfdom haunting Frederick Hayek's attack on socialism, Kotkin locates the adversary within capitalism. Fine. But you're arguing for more deregulation? That's what we need, more deregulation Mm. of industries. Surely we need regulation to begin with. Isn't how we got here partly to do with a complete lack of regulation? Pretty much I would have thought, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's part of what makes it an interesting essay is there's, there's stuff to agree with, there's stuff to disagree with, there's stuff to think about. Uh, I will, of course, have linked to that and everything else we've mentioned. You people know how this works. How can we end this on a happy note, Claire? Um, do you like avocado? I do like avocado. Although it's, you know, it's gross avocado season. It's winter avocados and they're like those, oh, okay. those smooth-skinned, chunky, gross. No, wait, wait for, I can't wait stand for them spring. anywhere. They're the, they're the devil's slime fruit. Oh, in my I mean, humble view. Look, look, you're helping keep inflation down by not buying <laughs> avocados. So kudos to you. And so Excellent. am I because I don't like winter avocados. I would uh, say um, if we could all come to an agreement to withdraw our labour for a single solitary day, we could turn the system on its head. But trying to organise a general strike is increasingly difficult. But it would be nice if there were more solidarity with workers. How, how about that? That is... That is a, a, an excellent note to end on because I think we're starting to see some little green shoots of that, aren't we? Viva la revolution. Claire Connolly, thank you very much for joining us in solidarity. It's been a pleasure. The people's Steve. flag <laughs> is deepest red. The dumb, um, something, something. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs> Oh, what a lovely conversation. Thank you, Claire Connolly, for that. Uh, before I go, uh, yeah, a couple of more fact checks. Uh, when I was talking about the railway strikes in the UK and about safety, I was conflating a couple of different things. During the 1800s, that is the 19th century, certainly railway unions were part of the eight-hour day movement, and that was a, a whole thing, but that was a global movement, and, and in many ways still is. Uh, 
and the British National Railway strike of 1911, which had been the first national strike of railway workers uh, in Britain. Uh, That strike also led to the Haneli riots of 1911, uh, same year, in which uh, two people died in clashes between railway workers and the troops that had been sent in to stop the blockade of the railway line by the strikers. Um... A century, well, more than a century ago now, uh, and, and up to 150 years ago, the, the whole origins, I suppose you could call it the modern labour movement. It's fascinating stuff. I just can't remember any of the facts. And the other thing I wanted to mention is, yes, Shoshana Zubov did write the book on surveillance capitalism and popularised the term, uh, but the term was in fact first used uh, by a couple of other people uh, a little while beforehand. And they meant something slightly different by it, but uh, have a look at the Wikipedia article. It explains all that. Uh, uh, see, just like last episode where I gave you a half-hour uh, lecture on, on media studies, um, you learn things on this podcast. You learn things. <laughs> That's all the edict for now. If you would like to support this podcast, please go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip and do the needful. The next episode will be next week with Mark Humphreys. Get your trigger words and conversation topics in by midday on Thursday. Until then, I'm Stilgarian. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.